everyone. Welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Alisa von Jürgen-Forgi, and I am here with my co-host, Irena Victoria Massimino. Our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. We want to start today's podcast by thanking our interns, Teresa Merck, Melissa Arnault, Lexi Poston, Erin Norco, Grace Frost, Allison Newey, Eric Silverman, Megan Firm, and Julia Pete. Together, they represent three different universities and several different stages um, of a career path within genocide studies and genocide prevention. We're really honored to have them with us, and without them, we could not do uh, what we do. <laughs> so, what Irena, yeah, what really. group. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Thank you, Elisa, for the introduction, as always. But yeah, we do have a fantastic group. They're really what fantastic. a group. What a I group. Mean, it's a group of interns, you know, volunteers that help us and have also great ideas in many of the fields that we're working in the media, much better than us in many, in many cases. They're wonderful with the media and they have helped us with research, with writing statements. They're really fantastic. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't do the work without them. No, we really couldn't. And they've each brought new people to mm -hmm. the to the podcast as interns. Um, oh, so it's really lovely. Hmm? Alison will be doing the um, Genocide News now yeah, as well. Exactly. So, and one yeah, of them, Alison Newey, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she started... She will be doing... She started mm -hmm. a podcast called Genocide News Now that will be available um, along with the anti-genocide coffee break... Um, under the anti-genocide coffee break. Yeah. And hers will be five to 10 minute weekly updates on news related to genocide. Uh, the first, probably by the time we publish this podcast, her first uh, podcast, the first we'll episode, be already up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. will be already yeah. up. Um, we it highly recommend it. It's fantastic mm -hmm. and it's a great way to stay up to date on um, the news from There's, around the world. I'm going to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, right. it'll give us ideas. Exactly. Well, you, you don't always have the time to check for all of this news, right? right? Exactly. So, well, we actually, the entire team, we have a wonderful team, like we said, and the entire team looks for news and is very mm -hmm. interested. We have to say that they're all, they sort of all have an interest in genocide, genocide prevention, and this work. So they, they look for news that um, that are of interest to the field. Yeah. So we yeah. all try to keep a, up to date with, with what is going on in the world. Yeah, exactly. And, and they offer us a youth perspective, you know, so like a very young <laughs> perspective on um on genocide and its prevention so one of the great things about genocide news now is that at the last half or one third of the the short weekly updates will be how to get involved and so allison covers the news and then gives you direct ways to get involved in you know being part That's of the solution important. it's very important and um all of her you know, action items, as we're calling them, will be mm -hmm. on our website. And so you can mm -hmm. listen to the podcast and go to our website and take action. Take action. Yeah, that's very good. I have some people always asking me how to get involved, right. you know, and sometimes it's not that easy to give them an answer. If I look at my career, I'm thinking, well, 
I sort of look for the answers myself, but it would have right. been nice at that time to have mm-hmm. someone telling me, go here, go there, do this or that. Right. And we need people here. I guess social media helps us a lot with that, you know. It does. It gives, it gives voice to many people and it also makes the information and that exchange of information and knowledge easier and for yeah. a bigger audience. Yeah, exactly. So, it's going to be great. Please tune Allison, Allison Newey. Yeah, do tune her in. Yeah. Genocide yeah. News Now, available under the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, of course, at Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. And if you are interested in interning with us, you can email us by going to our website. We love having interns. You have a lot of creative discretion when working with us and we try to be a gender positive workplace um, mm-hmm. that helps build leadership within exactly. young people. And tries to mm-hmm. also give the opportunity for all these young people to find their skills and find exactly. what they like. Something right. that is, is not imposed. Right. They are able to choose to work in, you know, for example, in media or in research or in writing, mm-hmm. whatever they choose and they can develop their skill or discover that they have a skill for something. I'm going back to Alison now because she's sort of discovering yeah. that she has a really good skill for podcasts. Yeah, so, exactly. So it's not, uh, it's an opportunity to help us with the work that we do, thus, you know, helping the, the global community, but it's also to find um, a way to discover what you like to do and, and what are your skills. So, yeah. and going back to that, why don't you introduce our audience to the new to the new news we have for our organization great idea we have big big news we have changed our organization's name and with that um you know come some other changes to our organization which we'll talk a bit more about but we are now the lemkin institute for genocide prevention um and no longer the iraq project for genocide prevention you but can it's find home us of the Iraq project, right? but it's home, home of, of the, the Iraq, Iraq project. That's right. We're not giving up on the Iraq project, no, but the Iraq project has become simply one part of a larger project. And Irena and I did this because we realized, especially with all this young talent that has joined our organization, that we can, um, you know, we could sort of leverage what we've already built up a notch and um, work worldwide on grassroots genocide prevention. So we chose the name Lemkin Institute to honor, um, of course, the father of the genocide convention and the man who coined the term genocide, Raphael Lemkin, Um, And honor particularly his approach to genocide, although he's the father of the convention, which, you know, is a is kind of a moniker used to point out that that he basically pressured the United Nations single handedly. It's a heroic story, um, single handedly to pass the genocide convention. And it's really because of him that we have a genocide convention. Mm -hmm. Um, The legal definition that resulted from all of the political negotiations and the diplomatic considerations is quite different from the um, the original idea he had of genocide, which included cultural genocide, 
and included more groups than simply the four protected categories. Mm -hmm. So the four protected categories are racial, national, ethnic, and religious Mm -hmm. groups, but he included political groups and social groups and other groups as well. In fact, he didn't seem to... um, he didn't seem to uh, desire that the groups be spelled out in any particular way that would limit. No, and that's you know, and that's what was in in the Assembly Resolution ninety six. Actually, yeah. I think it's ninety or ninety one I, um, the one that ninety six I. You're right. It's ninety six I. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. from nineteen forty seven, mm-hmm. prior to mm-hmm. finally adopting the Genocide Convention, and that included the four protected groups today, but also political groups mm-hmm. and any other group. So right. that was closer to, to his, his hopes. Idea. Yeah, and but he was involved in drafting yeah. the law. So, mm-hmm. And initially he had mm-hmm. also included cultural genocide and aspects of cultural genocide like linguicide. Um, mm-hmm. But that got cut as well from the Genocide Convention. And there's a whole history behind it, but um, basically it boils down to the great powers at the time, yep. who are the like, great powers today, and their concerns yeah, very about... Much, very, <laughs> very much, much so, right? Very similar. And, you know, um, they were worried about being taken to an international court for the crime of genocide. And so political groups and cultural genocide were left out of the convention, which has led to some contradictions in the convention, Um, And our approach, our grassroots approach to genocide prevention is very much more in line with Raphael Lemkin's, what we could call kind of his sociological approach, than uh, the genocide convention's more narrow legal approach to genocide. So while we recognize that courts have to use the genocide convention's definition, um, we also recognize that genocide as a process exists outside of the law, right? So it's not just a legal term. It's an actual historical yeah. process that happens, and, and this is, it can and be this limited the, by the legal definition. Exactly. And this is a, a, a discussion that has been going on and should never stop, because eventually that aim is to change that definition in the convention and countries internally have done so yes you know countries Mm -hmm. internally that have adopted a definition of genocide have included political groups or even through jurisdiction in legal cases they've made broader interpretation of what national group is etc but i don't think it's an exhausted discussion it's something that Mm -hmm. always comes up in conferences and exchanges because it poses a lot of problems to the recognition Mm -hmm. of a crime Mm -hmm. you know and although usually the argument that comes up is well there are other crimes like crimes against humanity that could represent the different facts criminal facts within the crime um, against humanity is still not similar because as you said Elisa genocide has a process it's a process and has a very strong historical process based on hate Right. And the creation of the other, the inferior. Right. And um, And the denial of identity. Exactly. It's dehumanized and then Mm -hmm. the denial of identity. Mm -hmm. So I think our approach is our choice of that name Mm -hmm. is not only because, yes, he's the father of the of the word genocide and who was inspired by, you know, the Armenian genocide as well. And not only that, but also because we we really engage with his understanding of genocide. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, and that's so something we can talk more about on our podcast, mm-hmm. just to sort of Certainly. highlight different approaches to Raphael Lemkin. Yeah, maybe a little a, bit of his story. Yeah, Because right? I don't know if all, all of our audience will know Probably exactly. not, right? No, but, probably but, not. But, but it's worth was. getting to know him. He was, he's such an yeah. interesting man. Really, it's a heroic and in many ways really tragic um, life history, but it certainly shows what a difference one person can make. Um, yes. And he committed his life to this. Yeah. That was his entire life. Um, he, in fact, died doing this work, mm-hmm. right, yeah. of of trying to, you know, get the world um, to recognize genocide and and fight against it. So, yes, we carry on with his work and, and we carry on in the spirit of his original approach, which was much mm-hmm. more holistic and exactly. much more useful to the cause of prevention. You know, exactly. if we're limited by the, the legal definition, we can't see genocide at its early stages or even before it started. Because no, you only see, you will afterwards. only argue it in a court right. of law. You can only you argue it in a court of law. when already the crime happened. Right. And what we try to do is to establish a model of prevention. Right, And Precisely. we can only see that if we actually see genocide as this historical process. Yeah, know? exactly. You know, mm-hmm. and you hear sometimes in the legal community, you would know more about this than me, Irena, but I hear it. Um, you know, in the community of international jurists who work on mass atrocity crimes, which include genocide, mm-hmm. that really genocide is a term that should only be used by lawyers. But the problem with that, you know, the problem with only applying it to a crime after it has been committed, which is how basically legal terms are applied, because like you said, Irena, they happen in a court of law, right? That becomes the moment of identification. Um, You know, the problem with that is that since genocide is a process, if we are not able to flag early Mm -hmm. warning of that process early on, um, then we lose sight of you know, and we lose our opportunities for genocide prevention tools and and mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very important that we don't leave the term to the lawyers, as it's been suggested to me. It's true that we mm-hmm. do. You no, know. it's true. You know, now that you bring this up, I think this discourse will change. Let's talk mm-hmm. about this mm-hmm. ten years from now. Yeah, I think great. this discourse will change because great. there is a lot. There is a lot going on about also in this. It's, especially in practitioners, mm-hmm. you know, I think maybe when one restricts itself to academia, sort of, I always say that the, the similar principles of ordinary criminal law are applied to the, uh, to international criminal law. And mm-hmm. it's that we're talking about really different crimes in nature. And I don't want to go through this. We can have a podcast on this, which will be interesting, but I don't want to go too much into this, but I think it will change because I, everyone in, that is a practitioner in NGOs or governmental organizations, even, are realizing that the ways of prevention now are failing. Mm, mm, mm. And same as, you know, I was in a couple of conferences recently and I was surprised at how everybody was embracing national justice, you know, like national hmm. accountability. Yeah, it's something that didn't happen six or seven years ago when I started working more into national cases, et cetera, for, for international crimes. And now it seems like, oh, yeah, national, they, you know, everybody has lost faith in the ICC, generally yeah. speaking, right? Yeah. Um, there was hmm. this 
eager, this welcoming, this very welcoming discourse, of course, because mm. it's, you know, like it's in the thought even of people in the 19th century to think about this universal, you know, justice course, or yeah. universal, yeah, universal form of justice. But it has failed, certainly, because, again, we say the powers that were back in the 40s, 50s, 80s, 60s, etc., continue to be now, and the UN represents those powers strongly. The world yeah. continues to be unequal, etc. So now that discourse, I see the discourse has changed, and it's more heterogeneous when talking about, you know, mm -hmm. accountability mm -hmm. and how to carry on accountability. Mm -hmm. And I think this will also happen with genocide. Mm -hmm. Eventually, people through the work of the grassroots will see that in order to talk about genocide prevention, you have to talk about genocide. Right, you know, exactly. Like, you have to be like able to use the term. Right? To, to talk about yeah. genocide prevention, but not use the term genocide. Right. It's a how can you even do that? Do you know, and it's yeah. uh, what I always argue is that it's, yes, you ha we have these three atrocity crimes that are considered high crimes in international law, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. And indeed, in a court of law, you know, some, it's often easier to um, obtain a conviction for crimes against humanity or war mm -hmm. crimes than the crime of genocide. And so that's one issue. But yeah. they have different causes, you know, and you're not going to, you know, and some people will say, well, if you prevent war, then you prevent genocide. Not always. Genocide can no, happen during peacetime. So exactly. genocide is its own little process, and it's very complex, and we're still learning about what it is, and we're certainly mm -hmm. still learning about why human beings do this, right? So it's a, it's a process that has a very similar form, you know, on a kind of large scale across time and across space. So that's very interesting. It's a universal human endeavor, genocide. Exactly. <laughs> sort of like sort of like revolution, right? So it's one of those things. And um, you know, we don't know all that much about it. So yes, we need to be able to use the term outside of courts of law. And additionally, um, in a court of law, if if an event that was a genocide can't be tried as genocide for whatever technical legal reasons, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. still important that outside of the court, the process that happened be recognized as genocide because genocide, as we were alluding to earlier, um, causes a certain um, type of harm that is different from crimes against humanity and, and war and crimes. Origin, exactly. You know? The, right. the, the, that intent to kill, etc., or to, to destroy, Boy. right? Or whatever, to commit whatever of the crimes within the crime has a different nature. It has a different nature. It has a different nature. And it has a different impact. It's a much yep. more collective impact. And exactly. so the healing process and the process of, you know, restoration or transformation afterwards um, requires, I think, a kind, of, a more communal and community-oriented approach than than is recognized by humanitarian organizations today, or yeah. by you know um, the the psychological community, right? The the community mm -hmm. of, of of mental health experts. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that you know we don't want to lose sight of that, and that's precisely you know that's that's an argument that. Raphael Lemkin made already in the 1940s at the UN, there were a group of um, 
of you know representatives and lawyers who were arguing we don't need a genocide convention because we're going to have the universal declaration of human rights human right right mm-hmm. and he he argued that well you know that universal declaration is very important but it adheres to an individual and somebody mm-hmm. needs to protect collectivities we need law that also exactly. protects collectivities and so i can see why that's controversial on the other hand he was dealing with a reality <laughs> he yeah. didn't invent mm-hmm. genocide he had studied genocide starting with the armenian genocide and in fact exactly. even before that you know he he noted when he was 12 years old he read the book by um the polish nobel yes. laureate heinrich sienkiewicz um, mm-hmm. Quo Vadis, which is actually a great book. Yep. I suggest it to my students because it's it's really gripping and sexy mm-hmm. at times. It's a great, great it's a forgotten <laughs> novel, but it's fabulous. But it's he read it when he was 12 um, because he was interested in the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, and he grew up yep. in a part of Poland that had frequent, a very eastern part of Poland up against Russia. It was often part of Russia um, that had frequent pogroms against Jews, and he himself was Jewish. Um, so he, you know, at a very early age, he developed an interest in and began to research mass, what we call now mass atrocity crimes and particularly mm-hmm. genocide. So he wasn't making up a term out of thin air. He had studied all his life a historical process and realized that he had to come up with a name for it um, precisely because it does that level of collective harm that needs to be recognized exactly. in law mm-hmm. and then also in the spirit of our interventions. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why we change our name. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's one of the reasons we actually have um, wanted to expand our work a lot more than beyond the Iraq project and restricting it to a country was sort of limiting the work we do and our image to the you know, to the public about the work we do. Mm -hmm. So we'll continue with the Iraq project because it's where we were born and and the source of all of our ideas and the the source of of our work, actually. But we'll we'll make it bigger. So you can find us, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but now it's www.lemkininstitute.org. No, dot com. Dot com. Okay, great. So www.lemkininstitute.com. But if you type in our old web address, if anyone out there has the habit of typing in our old web address, it will divert you to our new web (laughs) address. So don't worry. So we'll (laughs) have more news of what we're doing. So hopefully we'll have more information to give you on on our projects, website, etc. So we're slowly growing also, you know, thanks to the help of this wonderful team that Elisa was introducing to you uh, before. Yeah. So we're, we've grown a lot. It's nice, isn't we have it? Gr- it, it feels, is really yeah, nice, you know. And the, the growth, the sort of origin of this growth, I think was already in existence when we started the Iraq project, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, one of yeah. the reasons that, that we came up with, and Irena, you can, can you know, jump in, but one mm-hmm. of the reasons we came up with the Iraq project was number one, because we were so moved by what we had seen in Iraq and didn't want to be, you know, fly by night internationals that dip in and dip out in within yes. one week and, and, you know, do not invest long term. This is, this but, is in between parentheses. Yeah. What happens in Iraq a lot. Yeah, in a I lot. I don't want to give percentages, but... Terrible. 
I would say that the majority of those who go in mm-hmm. go out and maybe never go back. This right. is what we've been taught. This so, is what, yeah, this is what, yeah, victims so, and yeah. survivors have told us. We didn't want to be part of that. We didn't want to be part of that, you know, and make our careers through the work that the short-term work we did in Iraq, as many journalists and academics mm-hmm. do, um, you know, without investing long-term in in the people there. Exactly. So, you know, but... So that's one reason. But another is that when we were in Iraq, when you go there, it's just immediately evident in everything that you do that Iraq, and this is something, Irena, I think you're going to talk about today in more detail, but I want to mention it quickly here, is that Iraq, you know, in Iraq, there's so many outside forces at play and so many outside powers Mm -hmm. determining everything, you know, and yes. that impacts people's daily lives in very direct ways all the time. Um, and you can see that. You can see it everywhere. It's in the built environment. It's when you travel. Uh, it's it's everywhere. Um, and so we realized... And none, of it, and none of it has positive impact on the people. No. On the contrary, the majority right. of the population in Iraq lives in the very, very mm-hmm. difficult conditions. Not Indeed. only because of... The ongoing permanent conflict, you know, right. let's, we could go back in, in time many, many years. But starting from 2003, it's not only about the invasion and the many years of, of disastrous um, uh, war, but it's it's because people are poor. They don't yeah. have access to basic needs. There's right. no production almost of anything besides right. oil. Yep. There's everything has to be imported, fruits, vegetables. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 yeah. a very... It's a very limited economy, actually, although they're very, very extremely wealthy people yeah. that have links to this, you know, outsider countries that you've mentioned, you were yeah. mentioning. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Iraq makes a lot of people wealthy. It just doesn't make yeah. most Iraqis wealthy, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, yeah. you know, and what we realized is that it's war. The big <laughs> the big product in Iraq and the big, um, what could you call it, uh what do you call it, sort of like an ore or something, natural resource in Iraq now is conflict. Yes. It's not just oil, exactly. it's conflict. It's, it's, and yeah. we saw... I know you what know, you mean. I, I can't find the word. Yeah, I, but right, I know but you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, that's, that's what people are making in, money yeah. out what's of. What's in in Iraq is What's in is Iraq conflict. is conflict. And, you know, mm-hmm. nobody there... What's amazing is that is that the vast majority, the vast majority of people that we met we're interested in peace, <laughs> not conflict. And this was true, not just of the victims of the most recent genocide, not just the victims of ISIS, but other groups, Kurds, uh, Sunnis, you know, other groups as well, Shia. Um, they were very interested in peace. <laughs> and they asked us to share our expertise on genocide prevention because they want to prevent genocide. And so... Here you have a population that's very invested in peace and an external world that's invested in continuing war, even when they make statements to the contrary. And so we realized, well, you know, at some level, genocide prevention is not going to be effective if we're working with these external powers to somehow prevent genocide in Iraq because their own vested interests contradict that goal. Um, so the, the approach to be fair in the world, the approach has to also shift 
to grassroots people. But, you know, Iraq isn't unique in that way. This is kind of a new predicament that humanity finds itself in as, um, as wealth continues to kind of accumulate at the top. And as power accumulates at the top of the world economy and an ever decreasing number of people, mm -hmm. you seem to have access yes. to that wealth and power. The rest of us are really left with grassroots initiatives. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is how Irena and I sort of developed this idea of grassroots prevention um, and nation-based. So, Irena, you were mentioning earlier how important it is to have, you know, how important national trials are now becoming yep, in, exactly. in discussions about international yeah, in law, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's, I think that's, that's sort of the direction for genocide prevention, too, is that we have to solve our own problems at home. So Argentines have to solve problems in Argentina. Exactly. Americans have to, or U.S. people yep. have to um, solve problems in the United States. Iraqis have to solve problems exactly. in Iraq. Because external factors are no, never going to help. Yeah, they're you know? they're not helping. And right. if you know, if a country is uh, well, in many cases, is unwilling to have processes like that or to establish an organized genocide prevention model mm -hmm. nationally, of course, then of course there can be external help in the sense that's of the course. that's the role that certain organizations should have is to actually empower the country to continue in a certain process, either of accountability, of transitional justice, mm -hmm. of prevention, etc. And I think from our side, that's what we thought we could offer, you know, and we saw that it is it is the people, like you always mention this, Elisa, because you've trained a lot of sort of high-rank people mm -hmm. uh, nationally and internationally. Mm -hmm. You've worked on genocide prevention and, and there's this discourse of genocide prevention that is very recurrent in academia as well. It's just, it's left right there. You know, yeah. it's like academic at a certain level, mm -hmm. exactly. The elite academics talk about genocide prevention and the elites in governments or go governmental organizations talk about genocide prevention, but they are not sort of transferring that knowledge to the people. Right. Um, we could argue whether they don't want to transfer that knowledge or <laughs> they don't know how to transfer right. that knowledge. Let's right. just leave it that way. <laughs> but um, I think and I think this, you know, maybe I'm too hopeful today, but I think this will change too mm -hmm. because I'm listening more and more about grassroots initiative mm -hmm. and the importance mm -hmm. of this initiatives and how people have to empower themselves and, you know, how to as NGOs like ours, you know, like the Lemkin Institute and other NGOs can help those people and can be a tool for those people, right. you know. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. We always mention and, and we have now 11 principles that we set out and please visit our website to check our 11 principles as 11 well. 11 principles of genocide prevention. Genocide prevention, mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly, on how we also carry ourselves when we go to these countries, you mm -hmm. know, like Iraq, for example, or any other country where we could where we could do our work. And those principles are a guideline that I think will help for everyone else as well in how to do this work, you know, mm -hmm. how to carry mm -hmm. yourself as an individual, but also as an NGO when you are doing this work. Yeah. But I think, again, I think the discourse will change. It is changing already. I feel it. I feel that practitioners, 
understand that, well, you know, we're not preventing genocide. Accountability in the ICC just, you know, judges people in Africa and like what, mm -hmm. eight people, 10 people or well, 20 people, etc. And how is it possible that countries like the US, for example, can refer cases to the ICC? This is the International Criminal Court, but have not accepted the jurisdiction. So I right. think that's a serious problem to see the contradictions, mm -hmm. you know, a mm -hmm. world full of contradictions where crimes are not prevented with these atrocities, not crimes, mass atrocities are not prevented. So, well, I think there is there is a change in paradigm, yeah. you know. I think so. The paradigm, word. yeah, paradigm, paradigm shift. Paradigm. We talk about paradigm yes. shifts, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we were talking about in our last podcast this uh, this sort of impending doom of climate crisis and climate emergency yeah. and climate catastrophe and what it's like to do genocide prevention within that context. And, you know, I think that the paradigm is shifting yeah. Um, on that front yeah. as well, that, you know, we need ordinary it's, people it's not to recycle, but you that, know, but right, it's, it's, it's totally interrelated it's, that somehow ordinary people have to, have to be involved in the process as, as powerful people, as people mm -hmm. with a voice, right, as people exactly. who can make change, as change agents, as agents of history. It's very similar, Mm -hmm. And these two things are really bound up together. So in some ways, I think it's incredibly exciting. You know, if we, you know, for anyone out there who has had throughout their life hopes of, um, oh, I don't know, some kind of collective effort to make the world a better place. We've gone through 40, 50 years of, of sort of rather dispiriting developments on that front because the world has been taken over by individualism and accumulation and yes. consumerism yes. and excessive and really a kind of excessive yes. consumption a kind of meaningless production and you know to the point one can wonder well, what is the point of humanity mm -hmm. why are mm -hmm. we here so i okay. think this paradigm shift offers us a new hope uh for our species to mm -hmm. continue living, but continue living in a way that is much more gracious and and um, much more humble. Yes, in the face of all living things. Those right? are those are good words. I like them. Yeah, gracious <laughs> and humble. Gracious yeah, but and they're humble. beautiful words. Mm, yeah. In English, they sound so well as well. <laughs> what it's are they true. in Spanish? Well, well how uh, would you kind of translate the be... meaning? Como, it would be like con gracia, with, mm -hmm. but it's not really, doesn't apply the same. Okay. And humble is a nice word, is humildad. That's a very humildad. nice word as well. That is it's nice. very similar, mm. very similar. It's beautiful. Those are beautiful words. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, and you know, when, when one works in this field and you have projects like we do, you know, and we have all these young people with so much energy, etc. I'm not going to say it's not difficult, you know, it's yeah, difficult because it sometimes you realize that you're struggling against this very superior powers that in many mm -hmm. times we don't even understand, right? The extent and and we don't we don't even understand the extent of the information we don't know, yes, you know, right. like the extent well of things we don't know. Very that's well very, mm -hmm. that's also important to be aware of. But we've experienced change and we've mentioned the change 
our work has done in Iraq. So there's this lovely poem that I like to read every time I have the possibility about it's a Uruguayan hmm. writer. Uh, who wrote a famous book, The Open Veins of Latin America? Oh, Venas that's... Abiertas de América Latina, Eduardo Galeano. Yeah, yes. it's a great so, book. He has this poem. I can't read it, but I promise for the next podcast I will read it. Great. I will read the poem, the translation. I read it in Spanish and then the translation. But the idea is that when you do something, no matter how little it is, you will see that some change is is. is provoked that mm. you that you're provoking change and when you realize that you're provoking change you realize you, you can change things yeah you it's know so true so that's beautiful that it's so true so no matter how little that change is maybe there is possibility for bigger change right right so i'd right. like to say that i always tell people to never give up mm -hmm. because i know we can make a difference i know everyone can make a difference yeah. with you know Good intentions. I'm exactly. talking about the good, not the bad, but I'm talking about the good. Good difference, yeah. Good difference. Yeah, I mean, you that's such an important point, you know. Mm -hmm. I always tell my students the, you know, the success is in the trying. I yeah. think I've said that on this podcast before, yeah. but one has to keep that in mind because we're all just one person, um, yes. right? So one, it's in the trying. Also, yes. One small person mm -hmm. in the sense, not as every individual is, is big in importance, but small person before a state, before yeah. powerful companies, you right. know, before important international organizations. Mm -hmm. We are small, but we're not alone. We no. have to think of that as well. Right. We're not alone. We have a lot of people working for the same in the world and we have to get connected. You know, exactly. we have to get connected to to work with each other, mm -hmm. to, to actually mm -hmm. make a bigger change, yeah. you know? Alone, maybe we can make a small change, but together we can make bigger changes, bigger changes. for sure. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yes. that's, you know, that's my favorite thing about the work that we do, Irena, mm -hmm. is that, oh, you yes. know, we always say our ultimate goal is to create a shared language of genocide prevention around mm -hmm. the world. And that includes a language shared between elites and the grassroots, yes, right? Exactly. So that everyone's sort of speaking, using the same terms and the same general framework uh, mm -hmm. for this work and that we can, you know, collectively have a shared global project, exactly. which is to prevent yeah. genocide. And although prevention will look different in every na national context, mm -hmm. there are general principles and contours um, that are helpful everywhere. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and that's that's what we want to sort of bring to the grassroots. So that's that's sort of the basis of elite genocide prevention, right? But we don't, you know. But but that, that at that level, genocide prevention activities often involve also kind of prescriptive ideas of what countries abroad should do to prevent genocide. We don't exactly. do that. We give people the tools, the mm -hmm. frameworks introduce yeah. them to the the, mm -hmm. the the vocabulary, right, and the ideas, um, but then, you know, sort of believe that the grassroots in every national and regional context will come up with yeah. something much better than any outsider could mm -hmm. devise. Exactly, yeah. So, That's why, you know, I'm thinking of our 11 principles. Yeah, and, I love you them. Know, the, uh, me too and you know, they're great principles and I think that they they can be 
they can sort of expand globally and mm -hmm. anyone can adapt these principles to their own reality, but they're broad enough to sort of guide the conduct in mm -hmm. genocide prevention or guide how genocide prevention should be. And I think this is, you know, what we want to do is, like you said, that that's part of the language, right. you know, as the patterns we're putting right. together. Exactly. You know, that's yeah. part of the language that we hope it goes global. Mm -hmm. And then it adapts, of course, to the realities and circumstances of each country. Yeah, exactly. So, and there's mm -hmm. nothing more pleasant, really pleasing, personally mm -hmm. pleasing than feeling like one is a part of this work. You know, and yes. the thing we've avoided, and it's been difficult in a way, but the thing we've avoided is idealism. And, and you know, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't want to suggest that idealism is a bad thing, but we are not idealists. We're very, no. very practical. Yeah, and very we've pragmatic. seen, you know, we've seen when we went to Iraq, it's, it's very strange to go to a post, well, it's not, it wasn't post-genocide, to go to yeah. a country yeah. where there's an ongoing genocide yeah. and to experience so much hope for peace and so much interest in genocide prevention. That was remarkable. You no, know, so we've remarkable. seen it. That's not idealism. It's, it's simply would, fact. Know, it's yeah. fact. And when I, when we went to Iraq, I was, of course, I, I don't know what expectations I had before because I've never been mm -hmm. in a country with that situation going on. I've been to Colombia, but it's different. It's a different case. It's very, I think it's difficult to compare. But yeah. anyway, it's, it's culturally different in every way. And I never expect to, like we always say, people talk about genocide. Of course, maybe not with a clear understanding and all of but or the complexities of genocide, but knowing genocide talking about accountability, talking about evidence gathering, talking about, you know, like getting themselves um, organized to gather evidence, for example, right. and to, to, to find ways to gather evidence for the future. So they could be used in right. the future for a trial, you know, for, for trial. This is unbelievable. And I think that there is, that shows how much room yeah. there is in Iraq for doing the right things absolutely in the sense of for justice right for for commitment there is a lot of differences of course a lot of groups like you said so many external interests you know this like proxy interest in side working for their own mm. um sort of egotistic you know yeah. um and, and and selfish purposes but there is still so much room mm. in like the popular or the population, like the, the, the people. Yep. Right? The people. Unbelievable. And, mm -hmm, yeah. It's unbelievable. It was truly un unbelievable. It yeah. was uh, it was awe-inspiring. And then mm -hmm. we discovered that these people were doing all of this without any resources from abroad yes. or without yeah. any, you know, international organizations at that time working with them. You know, and no, I still, I still am adamant that there's no yeah. excuse. There is no excuse. We have had a genocide convention since 1948. And at least since the early 2000s, genocide prevention has become a buzzword in the international community. But then by 2014, you know, the international community didn't have anything set up to immediately 
go to a place where we knew genocide was being committed. It was in the newspapers all around the world. Yeah. Um, there's no excuse. Yeah, well, they, there's they no had excuse. R2P. They created right. R2P. R2P, that, that's true. You know, that again right. backfired, right? That's the word you use in yeah. English, backfired. Because yeah. then it was used to like destroy Libya, for yeah, example. Right. Exactly. So, so again, but there's all just... the happiness and all the, like, the morals, sort of like global yeah. morals that were put in I2P, R2P collapse. Yeah. In a it's, no, it's true. After 2011, that was Libya. Yeah, it's, it's quite true. Because that was, you know, like in ideal, ideally, yeah, I know. that was a tool for prevention. No, I know. But, but don't you think, I mean, but even if, let's say, even if all the ideals collapsed and everybody lost faith in prevention, you know, no. as, 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 as in R2P or even in R2P, right? Like, shouldn't there be some rapid reaction legal force that goes in, you know, when we were going in, it was you and me were going in. So it's not like it was too dangerous for league, other legal people or some large organization to go in and say, this is how you um, record evidence. This is the way the ICC will want to see it. Or, you know, some kind of rapid reaction forensic team that goes in and secures the mass grave sites. I well, mean, it was really, you know, why do yeah, we have that those? response that there is no interest in that? No, know, you know, like globally, there is capacity terrible. for that. There is capacity. Speaking, right? There, there is, is totally capacity. Yeah. It's just, I don't think there is an interest. That That yeah. is left to, you know, people like, to the You and me. And the survivors, work. right? Yeah. Exactly. So, so, yeah. So that's why we agree. going around. I was going around telling people, so what are you doing with this evidence? Yeah. Like, what, what right. you need to put it properly. You need to right. collect it properly, etc. Right. No know. one, there was no, no yeah. state, individual, not right. institution in right. Iraq or abroad yeah. telling this to people right. how to um, right. preserve evidence to right. make it useful for a future trial, right. for example. Exactly. Or do you remember when we visited the mass grave of older women? The, at yeah. the Solange Technical Institute, where, you know, it wasn't at all secured. And no, one of the guys there said, oh, sometimes we have to go collect bones that, that, that animals have dug up, collect them and put them back in the mass grave. You know, and this was, let's see, we went in January 2016, and, I, and I, that area was liberated, what, late November? So it was a month and a half, maybe, or a month? December. A month December. and a half. So it was like, a, you know... But it was a lot, right? So it was very soon after, but still you would think with all of the, with the fact that there was a war going on headed by the United States against ISIS, a coalition war, and and there was was, so much news coverage of what was happening to Yazidi women. It was all over the news. Right? It was all over the news. It's not that nobody knew. They knew there were going to be mass graves. They knew there were going to be mass graves. everybody knew what ISIS was doing. Yeah. Everybody knew what ISIS did to the... CDs. Yeah, right. Everybody knew. So they could, okay, now Sinjar yeah. is liberated. Well, we'll go there and They're secure gonna be this masquerade. and offer help. Right. There was nothing. There was so nothing. this is what we tried to do, Elisa. <laughs> so we decided, well, okay, <laughs> two is better than zero. So we'll, you know, do something. Um, yeah. And so and we, now we have nine. Now we have two, nine. nine. Now we two have plus nine, nine, we have 11. Yeah. 11 people. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, and, and 
growing and counting, and right? And counting. Because we always have some and counting. Yeah, we have more and, and more people counting. joining us, and they're very excited to be doing the work that they do, and they say that all the time, and it's very rewarding for us. So, so please, if you you know if you can, just visit our website, mm-hmm. share our social media posts that we we've, we've been doing. With that little, you can support our work yeah. expand. Exactly. Just with that. Just with that. Visiting, sharing our podcast as well and listening to it, you can help the work we do uh, help us become more known and, and therefore reach more people. Yeah. So thank Sorry. you for doing that. Yeah, so Irena has been busy. Irena is in a PhD program now, so I'm going to ask her to talk a little <laughs> bit about that. After years and years and years of of experience right as a lawyer right she's now and and many other degrees she's now going for a phd and as a part of that she's been attending a whole bunch of conferences so do you want to share your phd work and your conferences yeah i i I was that was interesting i think i did share a little bit elisa thank you um i yes i well yeah i'm doing my phd in law it's called SJD. I had no idea about that, but anyway, <laughs> hopefully I can contribute to to knowledge a little bit with what I, you know, with my research. And also, you know, it's it's very. I wish there was a broader possibility for people to do PhDs mm. and postgraduate mm. degrees because they, it's the only degree where you actually look for the knowledge. It's yeah. not given to you. Ah, you know, you look yeah, for true. it. And uh, you do your own research and mm-hmm. you discover new things and you mm-hmm. come up with new ideas. Mm-hmm. When knowledge mm-hmm. is given to you, it's sort of filtrated, fil- yeah. filter, filter, filtered, yeah. filtered. So I think um, actually this is a discussion we could have with an educator, but I'm yeah. thinking, well, maybe all knowledge should be like that. Learning should be like that, actually yeah. discovering yeah. knowledge, not being given but anyway, unfortunately, the world is a very unequal world, and not everybody can have access to this to degrees, not mm-hmm. even postgraduate. I mean, any sort of education, any at all. So, but anyway, in that context, I got to to do this um, virtual conferences. Fortunately, the pandemic has allowed us to to have virtual conferences. It's, it's very difficult to travel from Argentina, not only because of the pandemic, but because of our economic situation. So. That part of the pandemic, I really like the virtual world, yeah, right? Yeah, right. It's bringing people I, together, and it's true. You can attend things that in yeah. the past you could never attend. You, no, I because it's expensive. Care. Even if you're it's able expensive. to travel, most people can't because it's so no. expensive. I always, if I travel, I ask for a scholarship. It's very, very expensive. So I, I now I was in Austria for a conference, and I was in Germany for a conference, and two right. at the same time. So it's like the 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 ideal of a of a of an anxious person to be in two places <laughs> at the same time. So I was able to That's do that funny, for the first time in my life. Yeah, true. So, but the interesting part, and what I wanted to highlight, especially about the conference I had in Germany. Um, I attended, it was on international criminal law as well. Well, it was, the conference was about, it had a question on, are we fulfilling the Nuremberg principles or have we been fulfilling the Nuremberg principles? It was by the Nuremberg Academy um, in, in Nuremberg. And what I want to highlight and congratulate is the amount of women that were in the panels. That's so I, interesting. It, it was very nice to listen to so many women mm-hmm. and then also to see that many women when usually 
I'm not fully sure how it is in the States, Ellie, but here in Argentina, it's very difficult. It's very yeah. difficult. Sometimes there's panels of only men and yeah. the presenter would be a woman, right. which, you know, of course, it's like a lower position sort of. So they give it to a woman. You mean like the, the moderator? The moderator. The, the moderator. Well. She'll interview exactly. all the men. She, she'll yeah. present them and, uh-huh. you know, right. like say hello and right. goodbye, whatever. And that <laughs> would be a woman and the rest of, you know, and the speakers oh, would sure. actually just men. I think that's so, universal. Yes, I've I've stood up and left many conferences like that. Good for I just, you. I'm not. No, I'm not standing. It's just men that have ideas. But anyway, so this was a very good conference in that sense. And of course, uh, some of the things I mentioned that that switching mm-hmm. accountability ideas and the the speaking about early warning signals and mm-hmm. genocide prevention and prevention of other mass atrocities was like quite present mm-hmm, and something mm-hmm. that I, I, I very much um, enjoyed. Yeah. So that's why I said from, you know, 10 years from now, I think we'll be witnessing another discourse and hopefully we will be part of that change. You know, yeah, we will, with so. the Lemkin Institute, we will be part of that change. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. I hope so. That is very exciting. I'm glad that's what's being discussed, you know, amongst within the legal community or the international law community and the NGO community. I asked Irena when she told me there were all these women, I said, well, (laughs) are they academics? Because we know (laughs) academia is famously male dominated. Um, And what will happen is that there'll be all of these really wonderful, exciting, talented young women in academia and then somehow as they advance up their careers there's this attrition and they leave academia because it's so miserable and they're not supported and they're not given grants and they're not given authority and they're not you know or they're and they're not given tenure I mean there's so many reasons that women leave academia that to find someone my age in academia who's a woman um, is really rare. And I'm not even that old. I'm 52, right? So it's just, yeah. it's oh, lonely. No. Like, you know, when we were... 40s. Right? So when the Women's Caucus of the International Association of Genocide Scholars was looking for older women to be mentors for all the young women, right, that are in our field, there were like three or four of us. It's <laughs> And I hadn't felt so lonely until I realized how few there really are and then it and then it was not surprising to me that it's so difficult to be a woman in prevention so but anyway Irena then told me that no most of these women were working in NGOs <laughs> yeah they were all practitioners they yes, were either so... government you know in governmental institutions or in yeah. uh, governmental not yeah. mental governmental right. institutions and or non-governmental institutions yeah. sort of networks of NGOs or mm-hmm. some had worked in in their local there were people from Africa from Asia, yeah. women from Europe, but from different backgrounds in mm-hmm. Europe. So mm-hmm. it wasn't as Eurocentric right, as that's great. actually the other conference. Sometimes conferences can be very Western as mm-hmm. well. Like mm-hmm. happening in Europe can be, and I'm saying Western as in just covering um, or having speakers from Europe or the US. Right. But in this case, they were... Uh, those who sounded European, I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether they were or sounded uh, from the U.S., had a different background. Yeah. So, so they they it was quite a, a varied 
um, group of, of women, the, the majority, and in one panel, the moderator was a man. So I said, well, great, you know, this is this is changing. Right. But yeah, as you exciting. said, they were practitioners. So I, if, I don't see uh, that different here. Like I said, in the law schools in Argentina, the majority of professors are also practitioners. Right. So it's very different. Mm. Yet, mm. the higher, the highest positions, like uh, department heads mm-hmm. or etc., are mostly men. Mostly men. Or all men. Thinking yeah. about one of them is all men. Yeah. So it's, it's the majority is men. Yeah. But here happens almost in every level, though. But even it's in, it's in... the same in the U.S. I mean, maybe there are certain industries that are a little better here. You know, maybe. Um, there's more women in those, but it's the same in the U.S. The further you get up the ladder and the more authority and power that a position has, the fewer exactly. women who are in it or the fewer women who can stay in it. They may get in it, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, somehow it's too challenging to have them there. And the patriarchy has this incredible way of correcting <laughs> those mistakes of the patriarchal machine when a woman suddenly ends up oh wait <laughs> so they kind of delete her you know like, yes. to oh, get the machine running properly again exactly you just hit, the you hit delete or something exactly you know and so you'll see women in positions of power for a limited amount of time and then they're booted out and the men take over again mm-hmm. that happens in academia a lot but i think in other in other professions as well all over the world as we always say, Irena, it's pick your poison. Do you know there's because, certain, exactly. right? Each mm-hmm. each country, each culture has its own form of patriarchy and misogyny. Absolutely. And you can just <laughs> sort of pick which one, you know, exactly. but Absolutely. there's no way to really say there's some countries that are better in the legal realm, maybe for women than others, right? But, but then maybe there's more rape in those. So, you know, there's... You, it's it's very, so hard to yeah. say that there's certain progressive countries on, you know, women's rights and certain regressive countries on women's rights. It's really more a matter of picking your poison, I think. Picking your poison, totally. No, no, I think so, too. It's very, very few countries. We we can only think of maybe Scandinavia being the most, mm-hmm. you know, right mm-hmm. region, most equal region in the world. But for the rest of the countries, right. you know, I get, I always have, uh, I, I'm always asked about, oh, how did you do as a woman, you know, in Iraq or in the Middle East where I've tried? And I said, well, I don't want to get into that. That's like the first thing people, yeah, um, people point. And I said, well, I live in a country and I think the, actually the majority of the world has, like you said, you know, a different poison for women. Right. So, yeah, maybe right? pick your poison. Maybe pick your they'll, poison. They'll pick your poison. Some mm-hmm. might look more serious than others certainly we're not Mm -hmm. saying that they're all the same or anything but it's really all countries have different poisons for women it's really true more will kill you you know talking Mm -hmm. in this way more some will kill you quicker some might take more time but (laughs) exactly right it's true it's true right it's It's true unfortunately it's true unfortunately it is so Mm -hmm. i was i was happy to see this you know these conferences and all you know like to get inspired by other women, to actually hope that, well, one day it can be you sitting there as a yeah. woman talking about a certain topic. Yeah. Uh, it's it's that idea. When you see a woman in a position that is better than yours, you see hope mm-hmm. because you see that someone, and not only just yeah. one, but right. so many women, you see 
that one day can be you, that it's hope mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you can reach a place mm-hmm. what you know you can grow in your career mm-hmm. because of your knowledge, your effort, your input, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. And for us, you know, for you and me, it's also a concern with our work in the Lemkin Institute because we're women. Yeah. You know, exactly. And we don't know how serious we will be taken. That's the problem. We're interested to find out. We're curious to see how this goes. You know, all the research shows that women um, can't raise money as well as men, Mm -hmm. especially for initiatives like ours that deal with, you know, masculinist themes (laughs) like war, conflict, government, good government, things like Mm -hmm. that, Um, politics. So we'll Well, see. Let me tell you that the political figure in the world at this moment and probably for the last 16 years is a woman. Who do you mean? Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel. Yeah, I was going to say. All, right. you know, True. The True. We I love have. her. I do. That I mean, I understand the criticism, the but I love her. Leader. Yes. Yeah. No, no, yeah. me too. I mean, it's the political leader. Yeah. She's a strategist. Yeah. She's an incredible leader. She's a PhD in, in physics, I think, or, or chemistry. chemistry. Was it chemistry? In, I think it might be chemistry. Think, yeah. She, but she's a PhD, a cool. scientist. Amazing. A scientist. And yeah. So I think I'm the chancellor of, yeah. So I, you know, whenever anybody tells mm. us different, mm-hmm. I like to think of her a lot yeah. because she's, there's no one. I mean, you look at the and the puppets that have been around, like you know, Trump or <laughs> Bolsonaro, or I got Maduro, or I can even continue. My president now, Biden. Oh my goodness, it's the list is is never ending, right. <laughs> right? It is never ending. Never ending. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. one like we say here, one laughs because it's actually not to cry. Yes, because it's exactly. Crying, we say know? we have it's, the same like, saying. You, you know, same. yeah, it's a good saying, isn't it? A great thing. It's, it's true. a great thing. It's, it's true. We <laughs> it all. It us all. <laughs> it does. We used it a lot in Iraq. We laughed harder in Iraq. I, I laughed harder in Iraq than I think I've laughed anywhere else in my life. But that's only because there was so much tragedy yeah. around us. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so Mm -hmm. it's good that there are more women's voices. I think it's really important to have women's voices, not because, and I know we agree on this, it's one of our pet peeves, Mm -hmm. not because women are more peaceful. I reject that idea. We're not more peaceful, and we shouldn't be given that burden of having to solve all the problems that men have created, right? No, or to be more peaceful. And I I still think, you know, the young Yazidi women who were liberated from captivity and went to fight with the YPG and Yazidi units, right, to fight ISIS, I still think that's, you know, a solution. That's a solution to the problem that they faced in their lives and that women should have that option Mm -hmm. also as much as men do and as much as we reject violence, obviously. It's not a solution. It's not a long-term solution, but I understand what they were doing and I'd hate to to force, you know, all of us women into some kind of, oh, I don't know, pacifist community where, where we exactly. have to always bear the burden of, of, of I don't know, finding... Well, that's an imposed social role. It's an imposed social role. You know, it's like most role. women are more understanding, oh. women have more oh. solidarity, women... No, no, it's no, all not that's, true. Those are, 
Those are impositions on women and right. impositions on men, not allowing right. them to be like that. That's right, you know, exactly. Not to be sensitive or not to be in a yeah. way, etc. So if you like so those things, be them, but don't be them because exactly. you're a woman, and don't be them because you're a man. Do them exactly. because you want to do them. You're you know, you're committed. Exactly. You're a human being. <laughs> you, have, you know, exactly. But yeah, so we're not the fairer sex and we're not the more peaceful sex. You know, I think it's insane. No. Um, but but we are we are universally discriminated against. Um, and and our voices need to be heard. And I think we see things differently. And one of the things we see differently um, is, you know, is really genocide. And I think the reason is and I'm not making some kind of generalization or essentialist statement, mm -hmm. but the way misogyny works worldwide is that violence against women is very common in peacetime. Yes. Violence in the household, lethal violence, killing, femicide, domestic Absolutely. violence, and rape, and other forms of sexualized violence. This is very, we, we know about it when we're early, you know, from our early years onward, that this is a possibility. Mm -hmm. We see it happening to our mothers or to their friends or to the women exactly. around us. We hear stories. We're told to be careful not to walk at nighttime, you know, um, and terrible things happen to us. Exactly. And it's not to say that terrible things don't happen to men, but these particular things happen more to women than they do to men. Oh, exactly. and, and we bring that knowledge to genocide prevention. And, and you perpetrators know, so are usually men. And perpetrators so. are usually men. And maybe as things equalize, more women will be architects and perpetrators. It's possible, you know, women have taken part actively in genocide. And I, I don't think there's anything nicer about women. And so sure, as they become more equal and as they have access to the, you know, diseased power structure that's been created, <laughs> in the world they will act as diseased as men have throughout history for sure yeah but mm -hmm. um but you know given the situation where we women are in now we see things that men don't see exactly. um and genocide doesn't appear to us to be as um or to many of us to be as distant and exceptional I think, as um, as it often yeah. appears to men That's who focus true. on mass killing, you know, and we, we could see it earlier. Yes, we've highlighted this a lot, mm -hmm. also with our recent statement on the Texas abortion yes. law. But but also remember one of the very first statements with um, Turkey pulling out of oxymoronically of the Istanbul Convention. <laughs> yes. Actually, yeah, I'm saying right. it because it's funny that it was signed in Istanbul and the Turkey is <laughs> they out. pulled out of it. <laughs> and it's it's a it's a convention to for the protection of women, of course. Right. So we see this mm -hmm. sort of legal steps and other legal steps mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. state violence um justify legally mm -hmm. as a red flag or an early warning for you know for genocide countries exactly. that have these policies have more tendency to commit genocide in the future so yep. Yep. this is something that is that women see and probably men don't yep. unless they're you know very in touch or very informed yeah, about it, the situation. precisely precisely but precisely that, they may yeah. if they want if they take an interest in these things and pay attention like you're exactly. saying and inform mm -hmm. themselves they can see it too there's there's no reason that the structural targets yeah. of violence should be the only ones seeing it but it's often in they, the interests of those who are not the targets to ignore it mm -hmm. and and they often do but mm -hmm. they can see it if they want <laughs> exactly they can see it if they want right so on that note yeah. ellie should we move quickly i don't know how long we've been oh dear an hour our, and our, seven minutes 
Wow. We, yeah. Our podcast can last forever. I think, I think we'll we get could get tired. I think we could just keep talking and talking. I know. Sometimes, this is to, to let our audience know, sometimes we get together to talk about the project and we end up, you know, Lisa and I are good, great friends, actually. And we end up talking about the different things that happen in our lives and then of different political opinions, social opinions, whatever. And we say, oh, I wish, we wish we recorded this. Because <laughs> right, it was great for a podcast. <laughs> right. So, and we end up talking for two hours easily. But um, no, when I, on that note, I wanted to highlight just very quickly that there were elections in Iraq on 10 October. Mm. And um, although we haven't gone through fully analyzed yet the results as they've come up, um, uh, the final ones have come up just, uh, I think, on the 16th of October or 15th of October, and apparently there are no real winners, but there is uh, one uh, big loser, which is, and go, goes back to what we were saying before about the different interest, uh, external interest involved in Iraq. Uh, the biggest loser is the Iranian-backed uh, political party. And these elections were for the, the parliamentary elections, the mm. midterm, right, mm. parliamentary mm elections in the central government of Iraq. But hopefully we'll see what happens with these elections. There is this this there's apparently, although not fully, one of the winners or the winner would be uh Sadr, right? Al Sadr? Muqtada Al Sadr, yeah. Sadr. And um we'll see how that, you know, works in this in putting the national interest of Iraq first mm -hmm. as a country with all of mm -hmm. this diversity and multiculturalism um, before the interest of the region, yeah. which are mainly led, you know, by Iran and Turkey. And Turkey, exactly. With Russia so, and the United States yeah, and China, increasingly also, China I mean, in the background. China yeah. is everywhere now, yes. <laughs> Isn't it true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere, it's very dangerous, yes, yeah. yes. So, but, you know, immediately mm -hmm. the ones interfering mm -hmm. and actually Turkey has interfered directly, you know, violating mm -hmm. the territorial sovereignty of Iraq, attacking the Kurds and other communities. So directly those two are very, mm -hmm. very important, mm -hmm. um, Iran mm -hmm. and Turkey. But we'll see what is the impact, you know, overall. This was very recent. And we'll see what happens in yeah. a in a couple Great. of months from now. But um, this is one of the problems of the continuing instability of the internal instability of of Iraq, because this these countries are also um, sort of related to the different groups, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. either against or pro different groups. Right. And the different I mean by that I mean the religious, the national, the ethnic groups and political, so, yeah, and political exactly. So that creates even more instability and friction amongst mm -hmm. the groups than, mm -hmm. you know, there already is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really important. And we'll continue to follow developments in Iraq um, mm -hmm. because, you know, some kind of unity in Iraq would really, I think, be of benefit to Certainly. most of the people there. And so um, at least in as much as this would shore up some Iraqi sovereignty, against outside mm -hmm. meddling yeah um, exactly yeah mm -hmm. so that's important and i want to maybe we can end today with um uh with a commentary from the grassroots 
Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? We could talk a little bit about Namibia quickly and I can yes, read this. I think that's, yeah, that really fits into what we've been talking the about, themes, the importance right? of the grassroots and, and mm-hmm. the work we're doing and and how and to have that in mind when we talk about the work in Iraq as well. So I yeah. think it's great. So we're we talking can end on that note. Yeah, we'll mm-hmm. end on that note. Thanks, Udena. I think it's a good idea, too. So we're talking about Namibia, so in another part of the world, where um, there are sort of ongoing debates about how Germany um, can best repair, uh, you know, the, um, the crime of genocide that it committed against the Herero and Nama peoples when it was the colonial power of German mm-hmm. Southwest Africa, which later became Namibia. That genocide killed 80% of the Herero, an estimated 80%, and an estimated yeah. 50% of the Nama peoples, and continues to have a direct impact on survivors, um, this, the families of, of those who survived, in as much as they're mostly landless. They never regained the land um, and the wealth that they had before the genocide. So at no point in Namibia's history when it came under, obviously when it came under South African rule after World War One, and then later mm-hmm. when it declared independence from South Africa, at no point... Um, at no point was there a real kind of truth and justice mechanism that would restore some of these lost mm-hmm. lands. So land is a is a major issue. And about three weeks ago, um, there was a scheduled parliamentary vote on a $1 billion compensation package that was offered by Germany this previous spring. So in May 2021... Um, we mentioned it in one of our podcasts. We did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We discussed mm-hmm. it then um, when Germany made an open apology for mm-hmm. the genocide and actually called it a genocide and then w- offered yeah. this this sort of compensation package. And we were shocked back in the spring that mm-hmm. the compensation package was not negoti- was negotiated with the government of Namibia, mm-hmm. but not with the communities. Um, that were impacted by the genocide. So the suffering of those particular communities was erased, right, in favor of a kind of post-colonial approach where the whole of Namibia um, was Mm -hmm. somehow the victim. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, the uh, descendants of the survivors of that genocide Mm -hmm. um, were outraged and hurt by the way this proceeded. And so during these uh, parliamentary votes uh, about three weeks was, ago... Uh, like end of September. Then. End of September, so exactly. Of September. Exactly. There was a, a protest that was well covered in the international press um, of opposition groups, including descendants of survivors of those genocides. Um, and they had... Pl- there were about 400 of them who... Um, congregated outside of the parliament and they had placards saying say no to the fake genocide deal the blood of our ancestors was not in vain proper reparations now so you get a sense of um, what this was about just from their slogans right and their Mm -hmm. protest posters Um, and you know one of the groups represented 
within this protest was something called the Landless People's Movement that was founded in 2016 by a former deputy minister of lands and resettlement. Um, and so this shows how land is really central to all of this, right? The restoration exactly. of, of lost lands. Um, and so I want to talk, I want to read to our listeners a very moving piece that was written by an, um, an anonymous uh, Namibian who lives in the United States and published as an op-ed on the online venue called allafrica.com. Mm -hmm. Of course, we will post this on our website. Yes. So this was posted on the 1st of October, 2021. And the headline is Namibia, Genocide Deal Undermines Century-Old Quest for Justice. And this person starts, I am a Namibian-born educator currently living in the United States of America and a descendant of direct victims of the Ova Herero and Nama genocide. I invite you to step into my world to see from my perspective. For more than a century, we have been fighting. Imagine fighting continuously for almost 120 years, fighting the Germans, fighting extinction, fighting for international recognition, fighting our own government for acknowledgement of the genocide, fighting helplessness when no one would listen, fighting the Germans for acknowledgement of the genocide, fighting bondage to our history, fighting inside ourselves to understand that history, constantly fighting for justice to break these chains. And today, we're fighting to stop yet another betrayal. If we lose this fight, Tomorrow we'll have an additional barrier to justice. Imagine aching for almost 120 years. We are exhausted. We are demoralized. We ache. Our bones ache. Our minds ache. Our hearts ache. And our souls ache. We ache. We ache from fighting. We ache from having our hopes dashed again and again. 120 years of fighting takes its toll. We ache for that salve of justice to not just soothe but heal the wounds that make us ache. This so-called agreement contains no justice and only sharpens our pain and obstructs and prolongs our fight for restorative justice. Then I'm taking out a part here and they continue. Trapped by a dread that the German and the Namibian governments will enjoy the facade of resolution that ironically creates yet another obstacle to justice, this one more formidable because our government is sanctioning it. We are trapped, trapped by a foreboding feeling that these governments will prioritize the self-aggrandizing absolution of placing their signatures on a fancy document that essentially authorizes a century of struggle to be swept under the rug, even while the victims of the genocide unanimously warn that this agreement causes more harm than good. I strongly believe that rather than resolving our struggle, this document will serve to undermine our century-old quest for justice. And I'm excising a point now, and then they continue. What choices will we have if you choose to support an agreement that impedes our quest for justice by delivering the facade of resolution? 
I promise you that we will not step back. We will not falsely praise this sham of an agreement. We will continue to do what we have done for almost 120 years. We will fight. Yes, we will ache, and yes, we will continue to feel trapped, but we will not lose hope. My great-great-grandfather Rapote and great-great-grandmother Kachiukua were killed in 1904 during the genocide. He was killed fighting at the Ohamakari. She, like many others, was pushed into the harsh desert where she died. Their four daughters survived but did not escape the horrors of the genocide. They were enslaved in concentration camps and upon release raped by German men. Their cries ring in my ears and I will not play deaf. I will not stop fighting. I am resolved that my children will know justice or will die fighting. Imagine, you recognize that the agreement is not a solution nor a stepping stone to a solution. You realize the agreement hurts the odds of attaining justice and creates new barriers to justice. You then choose to reject this call for political expediency to adopt a deeply flawed and dehumanizing document, and instead you join our call for justice. Imagine your stance in opposition to the sham agreement results in the opportunity for us to forge an authentic deal that delivers justice, an agreement where Germany offers an unequivocal recognition of the genocide. Germany renders a meaningful apology direct to the victims. Imagine, in Ojiti, Herero, and Nama, to pave the road to forgiveness and healing, an agreement that also includes reparations commensurate with our suffering, reparations to redress the loss of life, land, and property. We will remember your contribution. We will honor you. History will remember that when faced with a decision to continue to oppress a people who have been beaten down for 120 years or so, instead, hear their voices and fight for them. Imagine you choose the enlightened path. This will surely be a more arduous path due to political pressure, but you know it is the right path to justice. We, the Ova Herrero, Ovambandero, and Nama people, are counting on you. And that's the end of the statement, which I find very moving. Well, me too. And really, Ellie, I have nothing to add. I think it's such yeah. a complete and, well, emotional as well, mm -hmm. very deep inside. It reminded me of, you know, the Armenians. Yes, right. But the only difference is that at least the Armenians have a state that seem, you know, to represent their interest in exactly. in that genocide. In this case, it looks like the Herrero and the, and the Nama groups, the people, do not find that protection from their own state in right. Namibia. Exactly. So it seems even more difficult mm -hmm. than that struggle. So mm -hmm. I really have nothing to add. It's, it's a really moving and, and such complete... Um, letter piece of what you know I wish there was a name so we could contact this person and talk a little bit about it exactly but it's, it's incredible it gave me goosebumps me too you know? right yeah 
Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, I wanted to share it with our readers because it's so it's moving and it's all it's very very incisive. You it's know very incisive. about it's why it's important yes. that that restorative justice actually take place and mm-hmm. that yeah. all the voices are at the table. Um, yes, that you can't just you can't just throw money, right? No, I would at, I was at your moral you know, responsibility. What? Exactly. My question would be to, you know, the the politicians is, you know, I'm not expecting Germany to see beyond that, but I do expect from the representatives, Mm. you know, of Namibia. Right. Like my question would be, what kind of reparation do you think that is? What are you repairing? What are you repairing? Like, what is it? What are you repairing? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Apparently, the billion dollars is supposed to go to, you know, various development projects, but that does nothing Mm -hmm. for... The families who suffered, you know, well, as as you know, as particular like families. Sim- yes, the know? symbolic reparation right. of the recognition. Exactly. You know, it's not just about the material reparations. No, and we, and we could have a podcast on that. This is a very interesting topic. Yeah. Because when people usually think of reparations, mm. they just think of of whatever that is material. But as you said here, well, there's a meaning of the, the part of the land, which is material, but has other meanings as it well. It has other meanings, yeah. It has other meanings. It's not purely material. No. And and then there's other symbolic ways of mm-hmm. repairing mm-hmm. Yeah. a community, a group, a, a people that, yeah. that well, evidently this is not answering. So, yeah. so in thank a way, you for it's, the, yeah, sure, thanks. Thank yeah, I, I really mm-hmm. found it great, and in a way, it shows that this is, you know, how genocide can be ongoing even once the the yeah. direct killing stops. So you sort of dispossess people of their lands, and they never regain their historical voice. Exactly, you know, they're completely mm-hmm. marginalized from the structure of power um, for the next one hundred and twenty years, as Absolutely. this person was pointing out. So, so we'll keep Sarah. up with this. You know, yes, and we we'll hope to go this. to Namibia as well, so mm-hmm. and to do some of our work there. So certainly, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, that's that's wonderful. It's a great way of ending. Yeah, it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful piece. What a great. moving piece. Very nice. Very mm-hmm. nice. Well, mm-hmm. great, Eden. It was so fun to talk to you again. Always fun. Always fun. I love our podcast. I hope people enjoy to listen to us just as much as we enjoy doing the podcast. Yeah, I <laughs> hope so, too. I hope so, too. And if you do, send us an email. You could mm-hmm. suggest issues we should cover. You can ask us questions. Most you know, definitely. You can um, subscribe to us. You can choose to support us on Patreon if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are just lots and lots of ways to get in touch yes. with us. You can and follow us do. on social media, follow share our exactly. posts. It's a, exactly. It's our getting involved interning. Yeah. Certainly. Exactly. So we invite you to do so and to join <laughs> the movement. Um, so we will remind you of our new web address. It's www.lemkininstitute.com. Um, and you can still find us on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes, and on social media. So this is the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. We're signing off, and we look forward to seeing you next week and wish you much health and happiness in the yes. interim <laughs> thank you all thank you Elisa thank you Irena thank you everyone bye everybody bye bye